Hey everybody and welcome back for the second half of our interview. Uh, so if you didn't listen to, to episode 007, um, I really, well you probably ought to go back and you know listen to that again. Uh, in that episode we talked about uh, advisory circular 150 slash 5200 dash 38 with Miss Amy Anderson uh, of the FAA. Uh, Miss Anderson is a wildlife biologist with the FAA and helped write these. Uh, so she's a great source on, you know, learning about these advisory circulars. Uh, and we did one long interview and we decided to break them up into two halves during editing. Uh, so that one was on 38. Today is the, the what I would actually think is the more interesting of the two, to tell you the truth. Uh, and that is about advisory circular 33C. Uh, in long form, that's 150-5200-33C, as in Charlie. And, yeah, in this one, we just go over the advisory circular, and uh, we learned some great, cool information about this AC uh, and some info that I really think is going to help you guys down the line with your own airport. Um, all right, I've done enough yammering on this intro, so let's dive right in. As soon as I hit the button, you're probably going to hear me and then Amy talking about 33C. So from there, yeah, if we, if we cover 38, let's just dive right into the the new the newest AC, um, uh, which would be uh, 150 5233C, um, which that just went into effect what the 21st of last month, I believe, uh, which would be February yes. February 21st, 2020. Yep. Yep. So this advisory circular AC uh, covers hazard. It's Subject title is uh, hazardous wildlife attractants on or near airports, and this one effectively cancels out. Well, doesn't effectively; it does cancel out 33B, its its predecessor. Uh, so, well, actually, let's you know while I got 33B in the conversation, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about what changed. Like, what is there anything you know that stands out brand new in 33C that wasn't really covered in in B or Anything maybe been clarified or anything along those lines? Oh, sorry. <laughs> you can edit that out, right? <laughs> you can edit that out, right? My oh, dog yeah. barking. No, well, I think that's just part, that just comes with the circumstances now. Mine's sleeping sleeping beside me, so. <laughs> yeah, I think I startled her, but because I was <laughs> looking for my um. My, I need to plug in my computer, and I, I think, yeah. Anyway, she's always sleeping in the office with me. So, okay. So, thirty-three C. What is so? What we tried to do with thirty-three C um, was to add in all of the information that we have acquired through studies that have been conducted over the past. 10, 15 years on habitats and how they attract wildlife. 33B was written pretty vaguely on purpose um, because it had to cover all of the uh, potential habitat attractants across the country. So, you know, when it said stuff like wetlands or agriculture it just made very 
broad generalizations that, you know, agriculture is, has, you know, attracts hazardous wildlife. Well, we've had so many questions about different types of agriculture that the FAA worked with um, the USDA Wildlife Services and the National Wildlife Research Center to conduct studies on different types of agriculture to find out if there were some that were not as attractive, that were safer for airports to either conduct on nearby lands or for adjacent property owners to um, conduct. Same with wetlands. Some wetlands, open water wetlands, you know, those sorts of wetlands attract waterfowl and more hazardous types of, of wildlife. Whereas densely forested wetlands might not attract the types of hazardous wildlife that we're trying to keep away from airports. So we wanted to make some clarifications on that and use the studies, the data, the results from the studies that have been conducted to flesh it out a little bit, to answer some of these questions that we've been getting. So I think that's one of the biggest changes is hopefully you will see some new uh, new sections, specifically uh, the mariculture and aquaculture under agriculture, um, because we have had some very, you know, some case studies with those types of, of habitat uses. And um, so there's just, there's more detail, I think, and hope that hopefully will be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's always case by case, regardless, you know, it's like we can, we can put this in a document that a certain type of habitat is, um, is a hazardous wildlife attractant. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to say, you know, yes, it absolutely is, or no, it absolutely isn't. It really is a case by case basis. And Whenever I get questions from the field, you know, is this blueberry farm going to be a wildlife hazard attractant? <laughs> you know, of course, my first thought is, well, of course it is, you know, something. But it's prudent always to, you know, how big is it? How are there any other blueberry farms around? Are there, um, you know, where is it located? How far is it away? Uh, what other types of um land use are there in the area. So there's more to it than just making a call based on a piece of paper. Right. Yeah. yeah there's no, there's no blanket that, you, that really covers everything. Absolutely not. Um, there is a big picture and all of these habitats and the operations of the airport. Um, it's all, it's all connected and, they all affect each other. So, so anyway, that being said, hopefully the guidance will answer some questions or make more questions. I don't know, but that's okay. Give us the questions that you have. And, and if it's something that we hadn't thought of before, or if it's in a new situation that, that biologists or airports are coming across in the field, then 
these are fluid documents. We can change them, we can update them. And it's always good to hear what is happening in the field. So we always invite questions and um, suggestions on advisory circulars. The other thing in AC 33C that is a little bit different is in section four, it's called the protocol for continual monitoring. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's 38, hello. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've run, it's a different document now. Yep. <laughs> uh, recommended procedures for the FAA, airport operators, and other government entities regarding off-airport habitats or land uses. Um, because we get so many questions about off-airport land use, and what airports can do about off-airport land use, because they're not the owners typically of the land. Um, and sometimes those land uses conflict with airport operations. Um, we decided to put in kind of, it's, it's a protocol that we use typically if we get questions about off-site land use. Um, and I think we, we did it just to assist airports and um, biologists and what kinds of questions you should ask, um, how you can stay involved in what's happening adjacent to your airports, um, you know, being involved with local planning meetings, those sorts of things. Because um, some people, I don't think they understand or realize until things are already being constructed what is happening around their airports. And at that point, it's a little too late to try to work out some sort of mitigation strategy with these projects and the landowners. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, and, and, yeah. I just, I said, thinking of that, um, that's got me thinking, though, too, is now when it comes to the off, you know, this offsite thing we're talking about with, with Section 4, uh, that also – doesn't that also change with depending on the type of airport that we're talking about? Is how far out, like um, we're talking off airport, like how far we're talking away by off airport? Like um, uh, in section one, it's actually um in one point two, uh, sites an airport serving piston powered aircraft. Uh, they want a separation distance from these hazard has um they want like five thousand feet. Um, so can we talk about a little bit about that and like maybe sure. not so much. Like, we'll go back to the, the hazards themselves, but just how far off are we talking about for these different airports? Okay. So, <clears throat> the smaller GA airports um, that serve those, those sorts of aircraft, that, uh, um, that distance away from the airport was the 5,000 feet was determined based on how based on the approach and departure elevation of the, the type of aircraft. And when it, how far out before it's not within that kind of zone, danger zone of, of the birds. So, um, so that's, you know, that's one distance. The other is um, 
for the larger aircraft and mostly for all certificated airports is 10,000 feet and then out to five miles. And again, that five miles is based on the elevation that aircraft travel when they are approaching and departing the airspace or the, you know, to get to the, to get to the um, runway yep. or to get high enough out of that danger zone where the, where most of the strikes occur. Um, so as that's, so they, those distances were determined based on, on science. Um, but in it's, but it's generally a rule of thumb. It's not like we are requiring airports to try to control everything that happens within five miles of the airport. We understand that that is not remotely possible. And um, we're just saying it's a good idea to know if there are attractants or if someone is getting ready to construct something that it potentially could be an attractant for hazardous wildlife. Again, we don't hold airports responsible for something that is being constructed on someone else's property. What the grant assurances say, if an airport has taken money from the FAA, is that they are, that they're at least aware of it. And if it's something that's going to cause problems that maybe they've reached out um, to their local community planner or whatever and said, you know, we think that this might be a problem for our airport and just shown that they're aware of it, shown that they've contacted somebody and said, we're a little worried about this. Do we expect them to get, you know, to stop something Right. Not, not on their just... own. I mean, if there if there's if there a landfill is is getting ready to be constructed at the end of a runway, then you know we're hoping that they would know that this is happening, and that the airport contact the regional FAA office and say we're really concerned about this, and then that can sometimes be elevated. Sometimes it's elevated up to headquarters and to the administrator um, to write letters and say, we really think this is a terrible idea. And, and maybe we can affect some change when it comes to those sorts of known hazardous attractants um, and assist an airport with that. I mean, we don't expect them to do this all on their own. We want to assist them. Um, but they just, they need to know, they need to know what's going on in order for us to assist them because in Washington, DC, we don't know where every landfill is going to be proposed or, you know what I mean? It's like, right. uh, there has, there should be some communication. There should some be, should be some coordination. And again, nothing in this chapter four is required of an airport. We're, we're just offering this as an outline of how, we, how they might be able to help make, 
help them coordinate or work with their local authorities on land uses outside of their control. Um, because over the past 10 years, I think due to some great work with by the qualified airport wildlife biologists, working with the airports, coming up with great management plans, strikes on the airport property have decreased um, and damaging strikes have decreased. Most of our issues now are with strikes occurring above land that is not owned by the airport or off site. So we're trying to figure out a way that we can do, that we can reduce those numbers as well. Um, and it's no perfect, there's no perfect way to do that. Um, so this is, again, just an outline of a way to attack it, I guess, for airports. So maybe they understand what some of the processes are and how they can be involved. No, we're not saying that, you know, they have to hire a biologist to go out and do surveys, uh, you know, five miles away from the airport. That's, I mean, that's not realistic. Um, right. I think one thing too, though, is that this doesn't, I think this also helps to show airports that they're not alone either. They don't, like, you don't have to go out, not, not, I don't know where this, you know, improperly. But uh, they don't have to just sit back and take it. They, there are ways, you know, you can you can bring into discussion um, uh, with the FAA and, and maybe make some amendments. I'm just thinking if there's some airport that, you know, is, is truly worried about something, it actually it opens an avenue where they can, they may not, might not be able to actually do anything about it, but they can at least get a discussion going. And that's half the battle there is just, you know, start talking, get it, get it in the in topic. And, um, right. I think that really that really helps uh, just let these airports know that they don't have to, uh, I guess, sit back and take it. <laughs> I guess is one way to put it. Um, right. And that's yeah. right. It's just a matter of keeping those lines of communication open with the appropriate agencies, local agencies, and um, and being a voice at the table when decisions are being made. Um, airports are very, very important to the local communities where they exist um, and, you know, for financial reasons and many other reasons. Um, so they, they deserve to be a voice at the table in, um, when it comes to planning and land use around where, you know, around their property. And yes, it's something else the airports need to worry about. I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand airport sponsors have a lot on their plate already, just yeah. dealing with what's inside the fence. Um, but being a voice in the, in the community and in the local government agencies, I, I think will also serve them very well. And we're always here to help but we just need them to communicate with us uh, and ask for help, you know? So that was one of the biggest, when we put this out for comment initially, we got more questions and concerns about this specific chapter 
because people, the commenters made the assumption that the FAA was requiring these recommendations, requiring these actions of airports and airports are saying, well, we can't afford this. This is going to be a whole new staff member that we need to hire or, you know, they just, they, for lack of a better word, everyone kind of freaked out and, <laughs> and we re, you know, we took all of their comments very um, seriously and took a lot of the suggestions people made on how we could change the wording um, and, and communicate better what, what our intention was. It was never to require airports to do something more it was to educate and to make them aware that there are avenues that they can take to, to help themselves when it comes to offsite land use, offsite attractants. And that, that was really the gist. And to say, you know, we're here as well. This is how the FAA would review something that's happening off-site and we're just sharing that basically right i think that's i think that's very very helpful is uh uh i just keep this i keep having this one quote from that one from the pirate movies going through my head is uh they're not so much rules as guidelines but yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's it which one yeah um yeah so i mean i think that's i mean that, i think that's awesome for folks to know and hopefully folks listening to this will you know they'll click and that you know these aren't the faa's not dropping the hammer you know it's, yeah it's it's my way or the highway you know it's coming out we want to help we want to help you guys do the best you can to manage your airports for these wildlife hazards that may or may not be occurring around your particular airport Mm-hmm. But at least, you know, have it in the back of your head that, you know, there's help out there. There are there are ways to to mitigate this um, or these issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's awesome. And uh, uh, I hope I think hopefully folks are going to take that away from from this episode that. Uh, uh, yeah, there are there are ways. And John Weller and I the two wildlife biologists up at headquarters are always happy to get questions from airports, biologists, um, industry groups, because it helps us know what's going on out in the field. If there are questions, Um, it makes, well, I, I love it. I love getting questions. I love trying to help people solve solve their issues. Um, and again, I mean, I learn more every time I get a new situation that comes up and it's something that, you know, we can use to help others when the next situation comes up. Um, because every airport is different. <laughs> I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's every seems, one of them. yeah. I mean, it's so, it's very interesting to me to to learn what's going on at all the, of these different airports and of the different situations that they're coming up against. Um, 
And we don't have all the answers. I mean, we just don't. Sometimes we really have to um, figure things out as we go because each situation is different. And that's what makes our job exciting. It's it's not necessarily the same thing every day. It's it's um, some kind of new challenge when when we get the questions. So so anyway, hopefully, yeah. please call. Please you know email. Let us know that you're having problems or questions. That's what we're here for. So actually, I was going to ask you at the end, but maybe this be a good way to put. Um, how is the best way? for an airport to get a hold of you? The best way, honestly, is email. Um, and our email addresses are super easy and they're on our website, the wildlife um, part of the FAA.gov website. Uh, Amy.Anderson at FAA.gov and John is John.Weller, spelled just like it sounds at FAA.gov and email and um, yeah, for me, emailing is, is, is just the best way. And our phone numbers are also listed on the website. So if that's the way you want to contact us, that's also available. Awesome. Yeah. Cause I know somebody's probably going to be sitting there just trying to write down or People probably already have questions for you. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, I lost. I'm not sure if you can hear that. My uh, my neighbor started running his weed whacker, and <laughs> it's it's kind of distracting me a little bit trying to trying to uh, read my notes, talk to you, and try to uh, push that sound out at the same time. So I'm not yeah. sure if you can hear that or not. But the f I didn't actually hear it, so okay. it's really good. It's just part of working at home, though. I I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, modern circumstances now. Yep. <laughs> uh, so just moving on, do we want to – so what do you think? We want to go on and maybe talk about some of these more attractive off-site hazards? Um, uh, I guess – I mean, everybody kind of – I think everybody should be pretty familiar Um. I mean, we got stuff like, you know, waste disposal areas like landfills and, and tra transfer sites, golf courses. I mean, that kind of classic. Uh, agricultural areas. Um, maybe that's one. Do we want to talk about, like, yeah. uh, more attractive ag versus less attractive ag? That That's a good one. Um, so... Some of the, the more obvious agriculture that we would attempt to to stay away from near airports is um, any seed or fruit producing agriculture, um, sunflowers, um, the blueberries, and and it's so regional as well. You know, um, the types of agriculture they're planting out in California is different than what they're doing in Virginia, you know, so it really is just so region specific, but basically, you know, generally anything that's going to attract birds and wildlife for food. Um, one of the things that we get a lot of questions about is, is haying, um, growing, um, 
vegetation for hay. And we've found that that is not as attractive. Um, the, attra the time of attractant is when it's being harvested. And as long as there is mitigation prepared or happening in the management plan for the hang that's happening, you know, when the uh, um, harvesting is happening, then that's really, it's the same as mowing. I mean, the same types of thing happens when you're mowing the airfield. You're going to get the insects are going to be um, uncovered and the birds are going to be following behind the the uh, machinery trying to snatch up the insects. So, I mean, that's, but during most of the year, it's not that attractive to hazardous wildlife. Um, one of the things that I had specific or, you know, experience with was the aquaculture, the like oysters, growing oysters in, in the bay, um, in cages. And we determined that as long as the cages are submerged, um, they're not really an attractant to birds because the way the oysters are grown, they're in um, this netting material inside the cages. It's almost, I mean, it's really impossible for the birds to even get to the oyster spat, you know, when they're young and growing. Um, it's just a matter of how it's being conducted. And that is important to know when you're trying to make the determination of hazard. So the only time that it might be more attractive is when you're bringing up the cages and removing the oysters, you know, the birds are going to be attracted. But again, how far away is it from the airport? Um, how, what elevation are the birds going to be flying if they're attracted to something that's happening right above the water? There's just so many questions. And typically, speaking from our experience and from studies, it's just not that attractive to the birds, um, except during maybe one specific time. Um, one of the things that we've come across is um, in the Southwest where they grow, I think it's alfalfa, yep. uh, where they flood the fields uh, for irrigation and basically create this wonderful yeah, uh, mini marsh. <laughs> exactly. And wow. The cranes, the geese, all of the birds that are attracted to this, you know, at the during the irrigation time is incredible. Um, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, so definitely something to be aware of and something to for, you know, if somebody's just, you know, wanting to create an ag um alfalfa field next to the airport, that is something that the airport is going to want to say, oh, well, wait a minute. Um, 
because sandhill cranes are going to do some damage. So again, region and location of the, the field itself. Um, and it may only be attractive during very specific times of the year, but the airport needs to be aware of that um, and, and be prepared to mitigate because at the end of the day, the landowner is still going to do what they want to do. And if it's, right. it's still, yeah, it's still their property. All we can do is try to, you know, ask. Yeah. And if that's the, what they're going to do, maybe there is some communication coordination with the landowner um, to, so the landowner can say, Hey, I'm getting ready to flood my fields. Um, and the airport can be ready for some backup mitigation if necessary, uh, or just to be able to be keeping their eyes open for that, you know, over that area during that time of year. Um, you know, that's best case if the field goes in as planned. Um, and it can't hurt to ask, can we control with how the landowner is going to act or how involved they want to be? Absolutely not. It's not realistic, but we can try, you know, we can oh, say, all you can do is try. Say, well, chances are if you're, the birds attracted to your field uh, are ingested by an engine and the plane goes down in your alfalfa fields, you know, <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants that. Um, so, you know, I mean, the chances of that are probably slim, but at the same time, a little gloom and doom might not be a bad thing to <laughs> make people realize um, the reality of the situation, I guess. Because yep. there is a, I mean, that is a very stark, I mean, a stark reality. Because um, I'm just thinking, like you were mentioning the Sandhill Cranes, and, and I'm just thinking maybe not everybody's well familiar. Picture a great blue heron. It's kind of a ubiquitous species, you know, coast to coast. Picture a great blue heron, but in flocks of, you know, between three and 300. Uh, and it sounds like a pterodactyl going over when they're calling. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but I was thinking if somebody's not familiar with what, like, what are, they, what are they talking about? Sandhill cranes, if somebody's not familiar, but yeah. Right. Picture 300 great blue herons all packed together going to an ag field. Um, it's very impressive, but it's also very hazardous. Um, yes. <laughs> um, no, that's that's great. Um, there's one other habitat that I was kind of want to talk about as that's in this 33C, and that's section 2.9, uh, the habitat for state and federally listed species on airports. And by listed, we're mean, meaning uh, well, T and E species threatened and endangered. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, Good question. Yeah, so just kind of want to talk about that because, uh, like, well, right in the very, well, first sentence, really, it says, an airport's air operations area is an artificial environment that has been created and maintained for aircraft operations. Uh, because an airport's aircraft operations area can be markedly different from the surrounding native landscapes, it may attract wildlife species that do not normally occur or that occur only in low numbers in the area which is a pretty good way of, you know, getting on that T&E list. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, with you know, just how with how unique an airport is, you know, based on the surrounding landscape, um, either it's uh, you know, one of these TNA species may want may become attracted, or uh, I've heard of groups wanting to, you know approaching airports wanting to create habitat on or near an airport because of this uniqueness. Um, so yeah, can we go over maybe go over yeah. that a little bit more? Absolutely. Um, this is something that probably causes us more headaches than anything else. <laughs> um, hold on just a second. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm, well, so I'm located here. I'm in, in Arizona. I'm not sure if I actually made you aware of that or not. Before oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm in Arizona, so we have species... Um, you know, one the the hot bird around here, at least uh, for right now, um, is like our southwest willow flycatchers. Uh, oh. You know, that small little bird that uh, always they're attracted to more wetter woods. You know, a lot of you see them a lot of edges, um, so you always hear about them uh, in the area. Uh, and they're on, on Arizona's, uh, T and E list. And I mean, we have the more, you know, everybody kind of wants to talk about California condors, but, um, as long as you're not in the Grand Canyon, uh, they're not as big. I mean, if you're on, if you're at Grand Canyon airport, then yeah, they're kind of a bigger topic, but, uh, yeah, just, so, so it's just something that you're always thinking about. I know. Sorry. I'm, yep. <laughs> I'm looking for. I'm looking f for my plug to plug in my computer because it's actually getting kind of low. And oh, there it is! Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. Here we go. Okay, now I feel better because that was distracting me for a second. Okay. <laughs> oh, was that what that beeping was earlier? Um, no, that was my other computer going to sleep. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So, um, we have some very specific examples of situations where we are having to deal with either the local, like the state um, Department of Environmental Protection or Fish and Wildlife folks or the national fish and wildlife folks. Um, there are, because, you know, something that may be protected by the states may not be protected under the federal law and vice versa. So, yep. so we've got to deal with both. Um, and again, I keep saying this, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but it's so dependent on the region where the airport is located um, because every case is so different. Um, we have several airports on the, in the Northwest that are having to deal with specific types of metal larks. Is it metal larks? Um, butterflies and um, um, ground burrowing, uh, mammals, things like that, that where the animal itself might not be a hazard. However, it, 
if you're not allowed to modify the habitat because there is a small bird that likes to live in it and that bird is threatened or endangered and the Fish and Wildlife Service is saying, well, you can't mow or do anything to this part of your airport to protect that little bird, that might actually end up attracting other types of birds or animals that are hazards. Um, so we've managed to out specifically in the Northwest. This is some, a battle that's been going on for a long time um, with critical habitat being, being assessed on airports. And um, there has been a letter that is, has been written to say that that region of the Air, um, Fish and Wildlife Service will not require the airports to protect the land um, for the species for reasons such as that species is actually in more danger if the land that they're preserving is next to a runway because, the, you know, those bird species are likely to be ingested or, um, you know, fatalities from aircraft. So it's not a great location to have critical habitat for birds. Um, so that's just common sense type stuff. So, but it took a long time to convince the Fish and Wildlife Service in the Northwest region that pre preserving these critical habitat areas on airport property is really not helpful for the species itself. And it's very dangerous for the airport. So, and unfortunately, just like every government agency, each region handles things differently. Um, we wish everybody was on the same page and there was some consistency throughout the country, but, but there just isn't. Um, and we're working, you know, we have an MOA, a memorandum of agreement between the FAA and several other federal agencies, including the um, Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the USDA, to, it's more, it says that we will all work together to ensure that um, even though we have different missions, you know, airports want to get rid of the wildlife on airport property at least, and while well, Fish and Wildlife Service wants to save animals and we want don't necessarily want wetlands on airport property, but the Army Corps of Engineers mission is to protect wetlands, you know, there's a lot there is some conflict there. And we we all get that. Um, so let's work together to make informed decisions and safe decisions about critical habitat, about wetlands, about um, threatened endangered species. The problem is not everyone even realizes that MOA exists. And it's very old. And we have been trying to update it for years. Um, and again, it's, it's a memorandum of agreement. It is not a law. It's not a federal law that says we're all going to work together. 
Um, it is a t an attempt at coordination. So we have been trying to get this done for years to have all the signatories um, provide updated and new language and to sign off on it. And our biggest um, challenge has been through the Fish and Wildlife Service. Because uh, they're getting a lot of pressure from their um, upper management and administrator. And so it's not been nearly as easy as we were hoping it would be. So uh, we're still, we still have not gotten confirmation from the Fish and Wildlife Service at the headquarters um, office that they will sign the current draft that we have. So we are working on that. And part of the new memorandum of agreement was to um, do a better job of communicating that this MOA exists with the regional offices. Um, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm just listening to you. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, I would hate to just be rambling on. Um, <laughs> right, it's kind of when you're driving in the road, you don't realize the, the, you're talking to somebody and you know, yeah, the and you're drop. Like, well, yeah, that's not fun. So anyway, <laughs> so that is one tool that we have attempted to create to help with these types of situations. And it's not perfect and it doesn't work all the time. And we're trying. Um, but when you're trying to get sig signatories from six or seven different federal agencies, Wow, um, that's a challenge in itself. But Fish and Wildlife Service has just has really been challenging, um, just with with them. Um, so anyway, we're working on that, and we want the regions to know that it exists, and it doesn't solve every problem. However, it is a tool for coordination and communication. Hey, the more tools in your toolbox, the better off you are. Yeah. I, I mean, and the more communication you have, the better off you are. That's why it never hurts to, depending on the airport, you know, some airports have um, either a wildlife biologist on staff, which is wonderful, or they have somebody like you guys who are on call for them all the time. Um or a USDA person or whatever. And that that person who's in, kind of in charge of their wildlife program, honestly, they should have a point of contact with these federal agencies that they might have to deal with when they're talking about dealing with threatened and dangerous species. Yep. Um, and they should have a relationship with that person. I mean, that's, that is what I always found to be very helpful is to know who it is that I need to talk to if all of a sudden I see a bald eagle starting to make a nest, uh, you know, on my property. What do I do? And, and work it out right initially as soon as possible and, and have that relationship ready and there so that when something like that comes up, 
Um, but you can, you know who to call and can work on getting those permits or authorizations to do what you need to do. One of the yeah. biggest issues we've had, for example, is in the state of New York and New, um, New Jersey, they, the state has huge conservation areas for the upland sandpiper and savannah sparrow, a type of sparrow. Cody would know. Yeah, um, up there it's uh, savannahs, grasshoppers, and henslows are a big deal up there. And the airport in Atlantic City has, you know, made agreements with the Conservation Commission up there many, many years ago that they um, would preserve this land on the airport property uh, for the upland sandpipers and the sparrows. And it has just become such an issue, especially because nowadays there's only a few pairs of sandpipers that even hang out there anymore. Um, there are populations and there's been strikes with the sandpipers. So, you know, that's you're like, well, that's, that's not working to save these guys if they're laying eggs and nesting right next to the runway or taxiway. So we have been trying to assist the airport with, um, does you know getting that designation off that land but it's been very difficult working with the conservation commission because their rules say well all right we can remove the designation of the conservation designation off of this but you need to provide us with another 300 acres somewhere else and that's <laughs> has been absolutely impossible um and so trying to come to a compromise is still ongoing honestly um so i'm not going to say that there is an easy answer for these types of situations um i'll tell you a good uh, another story real quick <laughs> of a better situation um Savannah, Georgia, um, they were having issues with um, a creation area that they had built um, as mitigation for wetland impacts many, many years ago. And the trees within the creation area had become big enough now that the wood storks, which are um, um, threat or endangered, I think they're just threatened now. I don't know. Um, it's different. I mean, some states have different designations for them. Yep. We're starting to, con we're, had constructed a rookery in these cypress trees now that were large enough um, for them to look attractive to the wood storks. And the wood storks, I mean, it was a beautiful rookery. And I was so excited to see it because the wood storks are just awesome. And, and then it started also attracting other wading bird species. And so, I mean, it was just a, the most gorgeous habitat for these rookeries. Unfortunately, it was in between two runways. <laughs> the wood storks would um, start to soar over 
the runways during the afternoon in large flocks, and there had been a couple of very damaging strikes. And it was a significant hazard. Where do you start? Um, obviously, something needs to be done about this. So um, we worked with the Fish and Wildlife Service regional office there. And the biologist that we worked with understood the situation. He completely got it. He knew that, the, that it was a problem. So we worked with him. He was very easy to work with. Set up a study to determine, you know, where these wood storks were coming from, where they were going to, um, you know, their general travel patterns. Also, um, put some tracking devices on them so it wasn't just observing with the eye. It was being able to track them. And also determine where the other rookeries were in the area. And there were, there were quite a few. So it's not like removing this one rookery was going to result in the loss of the Woodstark population. Um, there were plenty of other places for these Woodstarks to go that were safer and farther away from the airport. So, you know, we had to go through all the, the steps that were required. The airport did, um, you know, an environmental assessment, um, um, get an environmental, um, an opinion letter from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, there had to be mitigation involved. So, you know, we went through all the, the legal process, but he worked with us every step of the way and the airport during non-nesting season were able to go in and trim all of the branches that were being used for nesting and um, make it make that creation area less attractive. And they were allowed to go in and maintain it on a regular basis. Nice. So that was wonderful. That was such a nice um, coordination effort between the airport, the FAA, Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Army Corps of Engineers because we were messing with a creation area that was permitted as mitigation for wetland impact. So, um, so it can work out well. Um, you just have to get all the players to the table and work with them and, uh, and hope that everyone uses common sense and is willing to work together. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it really is so dependent on who you're working with and the region and what, what the exact situation is. Um, that's yeah. why I think people get frustrated with us because we don't have an easy cut and dried answer to their frustrating issues all the time. Um, and yeah. I understand that is frustrating, but it's just kind of the way it is. Yeah. I mean, but I think it's like, it's like that across 
Well, I mean, it's definitely that all across the wildlife realm. I mean, just coming from a wildlife background, I mean, nothing's ever cut and dry. It seems like every day is a different. Doesn't matter what job, if you're working with sparrows or fishers or an airport, it's every day is different. And every, I mean, half the time you got to invent your own tools to get the job done, anyways. That's um, right. <laughs> but, uh, or yeah, try no, um, different tools before you find the one or combination that is going to work. Oh, yeah. Usually you come out with some Frankenstein-looking thing that's got half of this and half of that and a quarter of this, and but it works. So what's the saying? If it looks, if it looks stupid, but it works, it's not stupid. <laughs> well, then you need to patent it and. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's a lot of million. Yeah, there's a lot of million dollar ideas just riding around the back of a dusty pickup truck. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. <laughs> um, I need something to keep squirrels off my bird feeders right now because they're driving me crazy. But uh, I can't even mitigate that in my own yard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's something to do. It's a good quarantine project, I guess. There you go. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, Amy, this has been... A great episode. Thank you so much for coming on and and hanging out with me and going over, you know, going over the thirty three and thirty eight and um, I think uh, I think everybody that listens to this is going to get a lot of great information and and being able to, I think it's going to help too. Just knowing they can get a hold of to you or or John or um and try to you know help out their own their own programs as much as possible. Well, I was happy to do it, and um, I hope that it does clarify some things. And again, if it just creates additional questions, give us a call. Yeah, I mean that's. I don't know. I don't think if it doesn't create more questions, I mean that's the. I think that's the one downside is that if you have all the answers, then what are you doing it for, anyways? I know, right. <laughs> But, um, all right, well, I think I'm, I'm good. Um, I'll let you, I'll get out of your hair, let you get on the rest of your day. And, uh, thanks again for, for coming on and, um, uh, well, thanks yeah, I mean, we've, for working with me on the time situation. Sorry you missed your meeting today. No, I'll, I'll get it in an email anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but. All right, good deal. I'm I was happy to be a part of it and let us know if we can um help out with any other podcast questions in the future. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, uh Yeah, we'll be in contact. All right. Tell Cody I said hello. Yes, ma'am. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks, that's it for today's episode. Uh before you walk out of here, make sure to hit that like or subscribe button as well as leave us a review or a comment down below. Uh, everybody that does leave us a review is going to be put in a hat for to you know get some swag each week after we release one of these episodes. Uh, but yeah, that does it for me. So thanks again um, for sticking around this long, and we'll catch you next time.